Hello, and welcome to Ideas Having Sex with Chris Kaufman. I'm Chris Kaufman, and each show I bring to you an interesting and provocative scholar to discuss topics in social science, philosophy, history, politics, and more. If you enjoy what I do, please take a minute to subscribe to the show and to give us a rating and review wherever you listen. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Ideas Having Sex. I'm Chris Kaufman, and today I am joined by historian and returning guest David Beto. David is the author of the biography TRM Howard, which we discussed in episode 11, so make sure to go check that out. And his latest book, which we're discussing today, is The New Deal's War on the Bill of Rights, The Untold Story of FDR's Concentration Camps, Censorship, and Mass Surveillance. David, thanks for joining me. Thanks for asking. Good us, to be back again. It's great to see you back again. Yeah, you must yeah. have enjoyed yourself so much. So what's your book about and how is it different from typical treatments of FDR and the New Deal? Well, it focuses on the Bill of Rights. So I don't look a lot at the economic record of FDR. I kind of avoid that. I give background to FDR's ideas, but the focus is what is his attitude towards freedom of speech, privacy, various individual rights. And I come to the conclusion uh, that FDR has a an abysmal record in those areas. I think he's usually compared favorably to Woodrow Wilson in World War One. What's your take on that? I would compare him unfavorably. I'll say to Wilson's small credit, Wilson was often hesitant to um, engage in civil liberties um, overreactions, but he was also deferential. So he had his attorney general, uh, uh, Palmer. Before that, he had uh, other officials during the war that he tended to say, all right, well, I'm not so sure I'd do do it this way. But if you want to charge this guy with sedition, go ahead. Right now, I'm not going to exaggerate that because there was also a vindictive side to Woodrow Wilson. However, with FDR, we get a guy that's pushing pushing constantly to prosecute people, to censor people, to put on surveillance. And he's pushing often over the resistance of his advisors, his own attorney generals, for example. There's commentary by them. Uh, Francis Biddle and Robert Jackson were both much more pro-civil liberties than Roosevelt. And they're often having to push back against him. So this is the difference that I see. The default for Roosevelt is always push harder, push harder. We need to to go after these seditionists. Now, one of the reasons we think that Wilson is worse on civil liberties is because there was much more resistance to World War I. So there were a lot of people out there protesting, pushing back, uh, a wide range of opinion against the war. And as a result, you have actions taken like uh, to limit free speech and so forth. They affect a lot more people. And the standards, you know, maybe are about the same in World War II. But in world, as far as government censorship and that kind of thing, in fact, I think the standards are actually quite similar. But there's so few, there's so little opposition during World War II. After Pearl Harbor, even a lot of the people charged with sedition, their immediate reaction was, well, the Japanese have attacked us. We're in this war. We need to hit them back hard, right? There is no anti-war movement of any consequence during World War II. So when they prosecute people, it's a very small group. 
And these are often people that are not against the war at all, but don't agree with the conduct of the war, you know, maybe had been especially opposed to Roosevelt's foreign policy before the war. In fact, what Roosevelt wants to do during the war is he wants to prosecute pre-war opponents of his foreign policy, like uh, Robert McCormick, the publisher of the Chicago Tribune, or Joe Patterson, uh, who was with the New York Daily News, and his sister, Sissy Patterson, who was with the Washington uh, paper. He wants to go after these people who had opposed him before the war, who are now supportive of the war. So this is a big difference. I say the standards of prosecution of civil liberties on the government side are really quite similar, but it's there are fewer fish to catch, right? With the same nets is another way of putting it. That makes sense. Yeah. And of course, we have Japanese internment, which, you know, several fold the number of people that were imprisoned under Woodrow Wilson are incarcerated under Japanese internment. So that alone would disqualify him. But I would say by other standards, he's not any better either. And you acknowledge in the book that Japanese internment is actually kind of an exception to your general thesis, which is, I mean, besides just talking about FDR's bad record on civil liberties, you know, you make the point that he's often given a pass by historians or or his abuses are passed over in silence. Uh, but Japanese internment is the big big exception that has been justifiably and widely covered. But you still include a chapter on it. So uh, what what do you think you're adding to the conversation in your chapter on Japanese internment that is new or, or different? Yeah, my original goal was not to do a chapter on that for sort of the some of the same reasons you you kind of hint at there, possibly that, oh, it's all been covered. Everybody's condemned him on this. Everybody agrees on this. And um, I was pressed to do it by the late David Thoreau. And I was resistant because it involved a lot of additional research, slowing down a project that had already involved more than 10 years of research and making it even longer. But I did it. And I'm so happy he pressed me to do it because you see how it fits into the general puzzle. You also see into how, yes, historians condemn it, but they also mitigate blame. They portrayed as an aberration. And one of the things I found, it wasn't an aberration. They also, beyond that, sort of say, well, you know, there was all this hysteria at the time. And we're not excusing this, but he had this incredible pressure on it. And uh, he was distracted, you know, the attack on Pearl Harbor. And he just sort of drifted and, and went along with the pressure, right? And bad guy, you shouldn't have done that, but it's sort of understandable. What I found, and what other historians have found, but it isn't generally found, you know, made its way into the textbooks, hasn't made its way in the textbooks, that Roosevelt's default was for Japanese internment. He had endorsed the idea in 1935-36, where he basically said, you know, um, in if it was for Hawaii in that case, and that's an interesting story in and of itself. He says, well, if if any Japanese citizen or not has met Japanese ships or has any connection with Japanese ships coming into the harbor, uh, he should be immediately put into FDR's words, a concentration camp. So that's sort of his attitude. And of course, in the 20s, he had written very racist op-eds for the uh, Georgia Warm Springs paper, 
is an op-ed columnist on Japanese uh, California and how California was right to deny the right of Japanese to purchase land there and so forth. And we shouldn't allow intermarriage. So he's got these kinds of attitudes toward the Japanese. Now, the Pearl Harbor attack, of course, is in December. Internment doesn't happen until February. That's a long period. So in the heat of the moment, most people were sort of inclined, you know, not even bringing the issue up. But Roosevelt steps back. He doesn't defend the rights of the Japanese. He doesn't do anything. And we start to get this hysteria building, and he allows it to build. And he sort of gives a free hand to the military. And in California, there's General DeWitt. And General DeWitt is the guy in charge of internment. But DeWitt initially had been against internment. He said a, J- a Japanese-American is a citizen, after all. If they're a citizen, they're a citizen. We can't do this. What are you, crazy? But slowly, this sentiment builds. And Roosevelt steps back and lets it happen. And when, it ha- when, when the military recommends internment, he says, okay, go ahead. In fact, Roosevelt wanted to intern the Japanese-Americans in Hawaii made a big effort to do that. He wanted to take them all and put them on one of the smaller islands. I forget which one it was. And he wants to take them all and put them on a smaller island. But they, it was with the cost of that would have been enormous, including diverting Americans from um, fighting the Japanese in the South Pacific, uh, d- diverting American ships and personnel. And so the man in charge there in Hawaii, the general, pushes back through bureaucratic red tape. He doesn't want to do it, and he's able to stop it. But that was what Roosevelt wanted to do. He brought it up over and over again. He wanted to also intern the Japanese in Hawaii. So he's pushing it. And I think that's an element in my book that isn't stressed in your typical history textbook. Roosevelt's the initiator. He knows what he's doing. He is also apprised of the fact that there is no real security threat from Japanese Americans. He's getting good advice from a lot of people like his attorney general and J. Edgar Hoover, head of the FBI, who said, we don't need to do this. There are a lot of officials who do not want him to do this. Notable champion of civil liberties, J. Edgar Hoover. (laughs) Yeah. and, And I think that there is I think there's an argument there that Hoover I think there's a civil liberties aspect, but I think Hoover also says, I don't want to do, I don't want this. And he essentially, the FBI goes along with it, but he says, you guys in the military take care of it. We don't want anything to do with this. And he doesn't think it's a, it's just, he's a bureaucratic empire builder, but there's also sort of a cautious side to Hoover, like, hey man, you know, this is too much. And there's some civil liberties concern there, I think, under the surface. So yeah. Yeah, and you got the Secretary of the Interior, Harold Ickes. You've got a lot of people in the administration, I list some of them, who say, we don't need to do this. And even Biddle, Attorney General, who's against it, says later in his autobiography, he said, he didn't have to do this. He said there wasn't really that much sentiment. Even in California, it wasn't that much, really. Um, It could have, this was not necessary. So Biddle, the man who's attorney general says his whole hysteria argument is not convincing. You cannot. I wrote an op-ed just recently in the Orange County Register just in the last week. And in that, I, I title it on Japanese internment, no more excuses. Let's stop the excuses for Roosevelt. So I think that the chapter fits in with the others. 
it's like a big puzzle piece, as I said. Now it's the biggest, but there are other puzzle pieces that are part of you know accounting for a civil liberties record. It all comes together, and you see a lot of the same people on the same side defending the Japanese and also pushing back on Roosevelt and civil liberties here and you know pushing for tougher action. And you see uh, the ACLU as a similarly very conflicted attitude towards Japanese internment as they do towards sedition trials. So you see uh, some how it all fits together quite nicely, I think. It's all happening at the same time, of course. And I don't know how much to make of this, but I've heard historian Thaddeus Russell, who, who wrote some very nice things about this book, in the research he's doing for his forthcoming book, talk about how there's documentation of Roosevelt's, I don't know if you want to call it obsession, but very concerned and thinking about the possibility of uh, of a clash between the United States and Japan, you know, even when he's in like prep school and stuff. Not to say that he's been planning this master plan forever or something, but as a follower of Alfred Thayer Mahan and the idea of naval supremacy being yeah. this huge, huge, important strategic goal for the United States and concerned with a clash with the Japanese for years and years. I, I think that there's some truth in that. He's also influenced by Uncle Ted, who is not his uncle, but his very distant cousin. But that's who he calls him, uh, Teddy Roosevelt. Ro uh, Franklin is a big admirer of both Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson. And he's one of these people that combines both. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt gave away his niece, Eleanor, speaking of Eleanor Roosevelt, at the wedding. She was Eleanor Roosevelt. That's how she was born. She was niece of Teddy Roosevelt. Now, her, I haven't done as much study on this as, as some people have. But the general, the general thing about Eleanor is initially this issue is a sort of raised of whether the Japanese are a security threat, whether we need to do something. And she initially sort of on board was saying, yeah, yeah, they could be a security threat. She does become much more skeptical of the program. Now, it's, 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 it's implemented. So at a certain point, it's implemented. A lot of people who might have been skeptical of the idea so said, well, it's here. What are we going to do? We're going to let them go now? You know, that's too much trouble. So she is pushing back in 1944. Uh, she uh, urges her husband, along with a lot of other people, like Harold Ickes, top people in the administration say, President, Mr. President, you know, uh, we're on the offensive now. Uh, we can let him go. We can let him go. And Roosevelt, this is really pretty cold-blooded, basically has the attitude, well, we got an election coming up. So he keeps them there through the election. But she's one of those that says press him. And he sort of tells her, look, drop it, right? So she doesn't go public with it, but she's uncomfortable with it, right? But she goes along with it in the sense that she's not going to take on, I'm not going to really blame her for that. So I think that there's truth that she does not like the idea. She comes to oppose it, but there's a limit to what she can do. And She's not going to go public with it or, or criticize him or anything like that. And this is publicly. subsequent. She she initially is is more sanguine about it. I don't know if I'd say that, but she initially there's a very, very uh, interesting sort of conversation that is had. I forget who has it with Roosevelt private conversation where this guy is sort of saying, look, they're no threat. 
don't don't do anything. I mean, don't worry about them. And Roosevelt, you know, Eleanor comes and says, well, they they've engaged in sabotage. There are some examples of this. This so sure her initial attitude is, well, gee whiz, maybe they're a threat. But then I think she comes to be very uncomfortable of it and and dislike the idea and take some action against it privately uh, with her husband. But there's a limit to what she can do and what she will do because, you know, they're a team, right? She's going to disagree with him privately, but she's not going to really take him on publicly. Uh, You mentioned at some point that obviously there's all this war hysteria and concern about a Japanese threat. There was concern that the Japanese government was attempting to provoke disloyalty in Japanese Americans. And you even talk about some real documented efforts that they made to do this, mm-hmm. the Japanese government. Uh, what were these efforts and how effective or ineffective were they? Well, they're very ineffective, but they made efforts. And there's no doubt about that. You know, they really didn't try to use them, you know, very effectively, but, you know, uh, for espionage purposes, because the Japanese government concluded that they were they, they they were not good for that purpose. In fact, when the Japanese engaged in espionage, they tended to have uh, paid spies. They often relied on Caucasians or uh, uh, Japanese who were not Americans. You know who, who had come to you know recently come to the United States. You know, just to you couldn't immigrate anymore after the nineteen teens. Basically, you couldn't immigrate anymore. But they rely on various other sources, anti Semites. They don't rely on Japanese Americans, and because they don't see them as reliable, now they make an effort and to pay for their education for Japanese Americans to come to Japan. They set up like hundreds of language schools, Japanese language schools. This is nineteen thirties in California. They are they provide subsidies to Japanese newspapers. And, you know, Japanese Americans are going to take advantage of, of a lot of these opportunities. A fair number of them do visit Japan, but there there really isn't any there really isn't a good payoff. In fact, uh, I've seen the stats, I've got them in my book, but something like over 90% of Japanese Americans who are born in you know, in the United States. Because a lot of them had been, because no, there'd been no immigration allowed after Teddy Roosevelt. They, you know, don't speak anything more than just a small percentage speaks anything more than rudimentary Japanese. So they're not fluent in the language. So they rely. Yes, there are these Japanese language newspapers that the Americans are not reading them, right? And some of the Japanese newspapers have small English sections. Maybe they read those. So, yeah, the ja- Japan's definitely trying to propagate the Japanese position on issues like the war on China and that kind of thing. But they're not getting through because the Japanese are going to American schools. They're born in the United States. They're reading American newspapers. They are really not familiar with the Japanese language as a whole. So, just not much there for the Japanese government to draw. Hey, everyone, this is Chris Kaufman. Just want to take a quick break to tell you all I appreciate you so much for listening to the show. And it's still a new show, still a growing show. And if you want to help me out, I would greatly appreciate it. Simplest thing you could do is recommend it to a friend and give it a rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. 
their algorithms, rank the shows higher, make it more visible, make it more searchable if it has more star ratings, more reviews. So anything like that would be very, very helpful. Thank you so much. I appreciate you all. Back to the show. Let's switch gears. What was FDR's relationship with radio? Well, he succeeds a another radio president, Herbert Hoover. And uh, Herbert Hoover had pressed for radio regulation for an early version of what we might call the Fairness Doctrine. He'd pushed for really, you know, incredible governmental intervention in 1927 when we forced many private radio stations off the air and the government, in effect, took over the airwaves and decided who'd get to use what. So Hoover was a big interventionist. However, Hoover did not know how to use the radio very well for propaganda purposes. Might not have been his inclination. He uh, was not a great uh, order, and he didn't really know how to use it and didn't use it effectively. Roosevelt, from the beginning, recognizes that radio is a tool to promote his programs. And um, he he has natural talent. People said that he could have been successful as a radio announcer had he not been president. He's got charisma and he knows how to use this medium. And uh, he's got a guy in charge of radio during his 1932 campaign that he promotes up to the Federal Radio Commission that eventually becomes the Federal Communications Commission. So he stacks it with all these people are deferential to Roosevelt. The networks are deferential to Roosevelt because other countries have nationalized their uh, radio and they're fearful of that. And Roosevelt is sort of able to say, imply, go along or I'm going to do this to you. And they do. They basically say, the, the networks say, anytime you're giving a speech, we'll broadcast it nationally, we'll interrupt any programs. Uh, you want free uh, radio time, you got it, basically. If it's during a campaign, you're supposed to pay for it. But, you know, Roosevelt's giving all these speeches that are campaign speeches, basically, and he doesn't have to pay for it. It is opened up to other officials in the administration, Eleanor. They're given a carte blanche. Radio is very supportive of Roosevelt. Now, there are radio commentators that are anti-Roosevelt. One of them is a guy named Bo Carter. These are on the networks, right? They are all pretty much forced off the air through various indirect, indirect methods by 1938. There are people like Father Coughlin, who was initially pro-Roosevelt and really goes uh, much more extreme and becomes anti-Roosevelt. And Coughlin's an important figure, but Coughlin is basically off the networks. Coughlin uh, is able to find a voice on the smaller stations, the smaller regional networks, and eventually he too is kind of marginalized and sidelined. So you do see, and Coughlin pays for his own radio time, and that is under various rules and regulations supported by the administration, that becomes impossible by the late 30s, early 40s for you to actually buy. If you wanted to go out, you know, if you were a commentator and you wanted to buy radio time, that is pretty much ruled out under various rules um, that the networks impose in reaction to the government and the government pushes, basically. Why? Because you have an obligation to provide equal time, and the networks just say that's too expensive. So there are no significant anti-New New Deal voices on the networks 
eventually become the three networks, uh, ABC, the, the Blue Network originally, and then NBC and CBS, will really dominate the airwaves. There are no significant anti-New Deal voices allowed. Now, in the print press, you have a lot more opposition to Roosevelt. So the print press is generally more anti-Roosevelt. Radio, though, he's got that under control through various methods. So you talked about this implicit threat. So there are calls to nationalize radio. <clears throat> and, and tell me if I have this right. So Ro <clears throat> Roosevelt's kind of rebuffing appeals to nationalize yeah. the radio and basically like protection against the networks as long as they play ball with him. And, uh, you know, there's this implicit threat that radio nationalization might happen because it's happened in other Western countries. Who knows if he actually would do it, but he's using this kind of as a threat. Is that right? I think he would do it. Sure. Yeah, go ahead. I'm just could. wondering, can you talk about like, uh, the, the evidence for that? Was he explicit in, in this? Was he, you know, are there are there documents like behind the scenes documents that he was, you know, using this explicitly as a threat? Or is this are we reading between the lines here? I think a lot of it's reading behind between the lines. But you I think you can find statements that he makes to that effect that he sees them as a tool. He sees he sees radio, network radio as a tool to advance his agenda. If they are going to go along with that, he's fine with that. Right. So this is this is Roosevelt. Roosevelt isn't a socialist, I would not say, but he definitely sees the private sector as a tool. So, yeah, you got to read it more in between the lines. There's a lot of support for nationalization from people around Roosevelt. But that would be a major, major effort. And he would get a lot of congressional opposition. He would get a lot of pushback. He's got other priorities. And radio's going along with him. So I think it's much more of an implied threat that, look, here's what these other countries are doing. Um, and also, he's inheriting some of this view from Herbert Hoover, who sees radio as a public service. Hoover is very worried about commercialism. He said radio should not be dominated by these commercial values. So he sort of sets the tone in a way. And then, of course, Roosevelt comes in in 1933 at the real desperate time. And the radio stations, networks are inclined to just give him whatever he wants. Once they start becoming a little bit more independent, then he goes in and uses various methods to keep them in line. Why was radio treated differently than the print press by the federal government? Because it could. Um, what happened was, it's, it's a very interesting progression, which made me write two chapters, motivated me to write two chapters on radio. One of them be, ends with Roosevelt taking office, because I thought, um, we have to look at how radio got to be the way it was. Because one thing I argue is that in the late 1920s, radio pre-1927 was actually, by some standards, freer than the print press. There was more debate. There was less regulation in effect. The print press, they still have prior restraint laws up to the late 1920s. Locally or federally? Locally, um, but they are allowed they are struck down in a very significant case called the Near case, which I think was 19, it was actually maybe 29, maybe a little after 27. And in that case, there was a law in Minnesota. There was this racist newspaper, anti-Semitic, that uh, they had a law that we have to see the paper before we allow it to publish, prior restraint law. 
Can, can you and, briefly explain what prior restraint is? Well, it's basically that uh, the government could go in there and say, we need to see uh, any copies of, of what you're going to publish. You know, they would say, you know, you've been a trouble, troublesome newspaper. Uh, you've done stuff that's, uh, you know, uh, inflammatory. And we need to see first what you're going to do. Right? Before they before publish we, it. Yeah, before they publish it, prior restraint, right? And there was a law in Minnesota that was aimed against this very, you know, marginal uh, paper where this guy was in the conspiracy theories, is sort of anti-Semitic, and he brought suit. And the ACLU, which was dominated by socialists and uh, leftists, you know, took on the case, as did uh, some leading conservatives like the the publisher of the Chicago Tribune who really was more important than the ACLU. And they hired very good lawyers, and they were able to persuade the press that this is a bad idea. And the U.S. Supreme Court struck down this law in the late 20s. And newspapers gradually became much freer, much more willing to take on the administration in power, um, because there isn't the government can't really do much about it, right? At the same time, what's happening is we get the Federal Radio Commission established in 1927 under Coolidge and Hoover's, that's Hoover's baby, and they whittle down the number of stations. They take a lot of the more dissident stations off the air, run by these kinds of populists, labor union leaders, socialists, because they say, what we need are more stations that are generic, that appeal to everybody, Right. We don't need a socialist station. We don't need a labor union station. And hundreds of stations are forced off the air. And then they're sort of encouraged to go into this generic mold. And then you start getting rules such as that the court sustained, such as uh, you can't, you have to provide equal time to other voices uh, of some sort. Uh, there's a guy named... Uh, Schuler, Reverend Schuler, who runs a station that is so powerful in its wattage that it reaches much of the Western United States. It's a California station. Schuler is a big guy in California, big political figure. And Schuler is literally brought into the FCC and uh, he's forced off the air. So a couple others are. It isn't many cases, but it sends a message. And by the early 1930s, radio stations, by all accounts, are in fear. They are in fear that their license could be pulled. They shortened the renewal period for licenses. I think it had been 18 months. I forget what it was originally, but they shortened it to like six months. And so these stations are constantly in fear that if we say the wrong thing, if we do the wrong thing, that's it. And all this capital investment is gone. And it right? might not in even be like they might not be told your license is not being renewed because you said the wrong thing. But if it's a lot of new dealers and FDR supporters who are running the, the FCC or something, it might just be that the networks that are unfriendly to FDR happen to not get their licenses renewed. Is that the idea? Or are they being the, sta the stations? Yeah. The yeah, license yeah. would go go by stations. But yeah, yeah. There and there there's just repeated commentary that, you know, um, you don't have to execute a lot of people to uh, you know, lead them to fear execution, right? 
um, um, you know, they really see it in those terms. So they become very timid and complacent. And if you look at the 1936 election, 1940 election, most newspapers, like two thirds of them are editorially against FDR. If you look at radio, it's almost universally supportive of the administration, complacent, and they're very much in fear. There, There's a show that was produced by the National Association of Manufacturers, very clever little dramatic series, kind of a continuing series, comedy, dr drama, which is an anti-New Deal show called the, uh, Smith, uh, the, the American Family Robinson. And uh, it does very well in ratings and that kind of thing. But the networks won't touch it. And eventually it just sort of uh, becomes very watered down and finally disappears from the air. So, but the but to the extent you see anti-New Deal stuff, it's at local stations, regional networks, but even they are very uh, timid about going too far. And did the federal government somehow empower private companies as well, like AT&T and Westinghouse and GE to also censor directly or indirectly on the radio? In the early 30s, there was an effort from Westinghouse, this group, this kind of cartel, included Westinghouse and AT&T, to build a national system of networks, powerful networks using telephone lines. They have these agreements, licensing agreements that they force stations to sign and to go along with this. But what ends up happening is a lot of stations don't go along with it and the cartel breaks down. And the federal government, I think, is encouraging that. That's in the early 20s. Um, certainly in the 1930s, the networks, they may be fearful of alienating the administration, but they're in the catbird seat. The networks dominate radio. Uh, these small stations have been forced off the air because of the Federal Radio Commission. So uh, they're very powerful. They're in bed with the administration. Um, they are very careful to go to the people in the administration to make sure that they are going along with administration policy. And sometimes they're very arbitrary about it. Uh, or they're forced to be arbitrary. Now, theoretically, you're supposed to give equal time to people. They're, you're supposed to avoid direct attacks on political leaders and this kind of thing. But there's a radio commentator named Walter Winchell who becomes pro, very pro-Roosevelt, and he violates all these rules. But, and there is a, the network actually tries to pull the plug on him because they think they're violating the rules and Winchell just goes to people in the administration and, and basically they make an exception for him. So Winchell can, can do pretty much whatever he wants and the networks can't do anything about it uh, because he is a very pro-administration voice. So it becomes very arbitrary in the way that this rule is enforced against, for example, radio commentators. And, and Winchell is one of the key people out there. Let's talk a little bit about the Black Committee. So what was the Black Committee? Who was Black and what was what was the official purpose and what do you think was the actual purpose of this committee? Senator Hugo Black from Alabama. In fact, went to the University of Alabama and um, he ended up we better he's better known for his for his tenure, very long tenure on the Supreme Court. But before that, he was known as an administration attack dog to beat all attack dogs. He was a chair of a 
uh, you know, very powerful person in the Senate. And if you listen, there's only one speech from this early period that I know of that that is recorded. And this guy's out of control. He's like Keith Olbermann on steroids going after, you know, these right wingers, that kind of thing. Real populist guy who had also, interestingly enough, had some ties in the 1920s to the Ku Klux Klan, was a member of the Klan. But he downplayed that later. And it wasn't as generally talked about. He's a very populist guy, supports the New Deal, big government guy. And what is happening, initially, the New Deal has broad support. People are willing to give Roosevelt anything. But by 1935, 34, to some extent, there is rising opposition to Roosevelt. As a matter of fact, he's starting to fall in the polls. And there's some good polls at the time, the Gallup poll, pretty good. And it shows him slow erosion. There are various elections in 35, you know, these off-year elections like you have in Kentucky, New Jersey, places like that. Mayoral elections, a congressman dies, they elect a replacement. And the Republicans are winning those. They're on a roll. There are polls in early 1936 that actually see Roosevelt losing the 36 elections. I'm talking about credible polls, right? That called it right when he won in 36. So they're worried about this. People in the administration are worried about it. They said, we got to do something to, to tamp down this anti-New Deal opposition. And they say, basically come to the conclusion, well, they're lobbying. Let's investigate them for lobbying. And they set up a committee, and it defines lobbying as just about anything, any attempt to influence legislation. So I, we would be engaged in lobbying now, mm-hmm. not because we're trying to influence legislation. We're trying to influence the world of ideas, right? That would be enough, indirect. And so basically, Black, you know, they look around and they say, who do we get to chair this? And this is, this is the administration. They said, Black is the guy. So they 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 uh, he is the chair of a committee to investigate lobbying. Now, initially, Black gets a lot of pushback on this. People are comparing him to the KGB or GRU or whatever it's called at the time. There's a lot of criticism of his tactics. Um, but there's a big effort to oppose legislation to regulate utilities. And there are thousands of telegrams that are being sent in. And it is found that some of those telegrams were fake telegrams, were sent through sort of improper methods. Most of these are genuine, but there are some of these. So Black says, aha, I've got my in. So he goes to the Federal Communications Commission and goes to the administration. I want to, I want to uh, get access to private telegrams. He also goes to the IRS. I want to get access to tax returns. And they give him carte blanche. And that's important for the federal radio, for the uh, telegrams. More than 50% of communication in the early 1930s, long-distance communication, is through private telegrams. They are the emails of the time. They are instantaneous in many ways, almost instantaneous. People let their hair down in telegrams. They'll say things they wouldn't say in a letter, right, or publicly. And there are thousands of them. They go back and forth. They are really the email of their time. And that is, you know, more than half of long distance communications is is telegrams. So Black gets the idea that I'll target these leading opponents of the New Deal. 
And what I'll do is I'll find their private telegrams. Because if I have access to that, I can see, it's like, I'm going to target, uh, you know, anyone we know, you go out, you get their emails, you got some pretty big dynamite, right? For all of us, probably, right? That can be mm-hmm. misused and so forth. And they're able to do that. Well, how does he do it? He goes to, the Fe- he goes to Western Union the, and then the other telegraph companies. Western Union handles the vast majority and um, says to them, I want X, I want all your telegrams uh, for sent by and from every single member of Congress. Let's see, starts with that. It doesn't expand the list for like a nine month period. And uh, Western Union is no, we're not doing that. Uh, they have a tradition of not cooperating. They say, you know, if you get a specific subpoena, I want Joe Smith's telegrams, you know, then come back to us. But we can't do what this drag, it's not even a subpoena. They call it a dragnet subpoena, but it's not really a subpoena. It's just say, order, give me these. And so he goes to the, you know, the FCC basically tells uh, Western Union, you have to cooperate. Western Union is required. All the telegraph companies are required to keep copies of each telegram, right? So they have copies of everybody's telegrams. They're required by and law? So, yeah, required by law to do that. And uh, this goes way back. And there had been other cases like this, but nothing like this this big, you know, where they come and subpoena telegrams. Eugene Debs was an example. They did that for him in, I think, the 1890s. But it, was, it wasn't anything like this. And so um, they go in there. Western Union has to cooperate. And they start searching. They go through several thousand a day. They do this over a long period. And eventually, uh, it adds up to some three million that they've gone through. Now, the uh, searchers are a team, Blacks Committee, people from the FCC. And they are instructed to, by Black, to, well, if you see stuff of a personal nature, just a pure person, go beyond that, you know, avoid that. You know, don't look at that. We just want information about lobbying. And that could be, you know, I think Roosevelt's a scumbag, right? I mean, it could be anything political. That's all we want. And so they they end up tar- uh, flagging those and copying those several thousand that are in, you know, that that meet that definition. Ah, we got him here. And then they give these to Black, and he is able to literally ambush people who come before his committee. Isn't it true that you said this in this telegram on June 8th, right? Imagine us being ambushed for our emails, sort of like that. What would your reaction? I, I don't, you know, whatever, you know. What was people the legal don't justification They don't say their telegrams. Say, so, well, do you have a copy of this telegram? So, I don't say my telegrams, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's like emails, right? Yeah. You just send them, send them, send them, right? To you know, you have stacks of them. Your typical, you know, a lot of your typical lawyers and business people, congressmen, that kind of thing. How is he legally allowed to do this? I, I'm just flabbergasted that this is legal. Well, it's all very secretive how this occurs. It's it's discreet. But what eventually happens? Because they're off. They're early on in the gathering stage. They're going there, and it's really not leaking out that this is happening. But then Western Union becomes so upset by this when they start expanding to other people that are not even congressmen that are in small towns. You know, they start saying, well, we want these two and we want these two and we want these two. 
And the people of Western Union say, whoa, man, this is not good for business if people find this out. We got to stop it. And so they start informing people who have been targeted by these individual uh, subpoenas. And uh, one of them is Newton Baker, who had been Secretary of War in the Wilson administration. Baker is so mad about this when he finds out, he says, Baker's a moderate guy, right? Not a big anti-New Deal guy. And he said, look, if I saw a lynching party about ready to string up Senator Black, I would not help them, but I wouldn't do anything if I saw the rope being put around his neck, right? Mm. Um, you have a lot of anger. One of the guys that's angry is Silas Strong, who's head of the Chamber of Commerce. He's head of the Golf Association. He's head of the Bar Association. He's a, he's a Republican uh, National Committee. This guy is wearing all these different hats. And Strawn runs a leading law firm in Chicago. So Strawn brings suit. He said, this is violating the, you know, the obvious things, Fourth Amendment, search and seizure. It's violating the Bill of Rights. And he constructs this case and he takes it to court. It works its way through the court system. There are other people that bring suits, including a very famous case of William Randolph Hearst, who brings a suit. And it's, it's sort of a different story with Hearst, but it's kind of both these suits are, are end up being successful in the lower courts. And basically what and this is rare because congressional committees are given great leeway at this time. Uh, but basically, the lower courts say uh, district courts, look, you can't do this, but we really can't do about anything you've done already. It's happened. It's water under the bridge. But a congressional committee in the future Senator Black, you can't do this anymore. And Black is a little put off by this, but then he says, oh, we don't need to do anymore because they, they'd done plenty. They'd finished their field investigation, so they stop. And so it doesn't go up the chain to the U.S. Supreme Court. But in the lower courts, he loses. He slammed down. But he's done all the existing, he's essentially told not to do this in the future. But everything he's done, he can use, and he does. So yes, and the Republican Party makes something out of this. It's in the Republican platform where they're saying that there are Senate committees that are engaging in inquisitorial tactics, violating uh, individual rights. And quite clearly, they don't mention it, but they're talking about the Black Committee. How does this committee and these investigations compare, for better or worse, with McCarthy later on? It's interesting because Black is able to do something McCarthy wasn't able to do. That is, monitor all telegrams in this way. And that's because of this precedent. It was a precedent, um, and it, it applied. And so you couldn't get a congressional committee after this doing this kind of tactic. So in that sense, it's I don't know if I'd compare it. I'd say, in that sense, it's worse, you know, because he's looking at private telegrams. and McCarthy can't really do that on the kind of wholesale level that Black is doing. So it kind of slams him down. It also provides something of a precedent for other Supreme Court rulings that would make would have made it very difficult for McCarthy or much more powerful, frankly, was the House Committee on Un-American Activities, met much more powerful and predated McCarthy doing anti-communist investigations. They couldn't do stuff like wholesale tap a bunch of phones. 
because this is sort of a precedent in a way that prevents some of that kind of wholesale approach. So in that sense, I would say it's worse. It's hard to compare them. One difference is that Black has the sanction of the administration there in his corner. Eisenhower never liked McCarthy. Eisenhower ultimately does McCarthy in. Uh, he ends up sort of going along with him to some extent, but then he turns on him and there's a limit to how much he's going to do it. McCarthy is a ultimate loose cannon. He will make all sorts of charges and he can't really back them up. Uh, Black does that to some extent, but he also um, has a lot of this stuff, you know, from these searches and so forth. Um, so it's hard to make a comparison, but I would say it's it's maybe a more pervasive hysteria that occurs, not just because of McCarthy, but because of the Red Scare of the 40s and 50s. More pervasive in terms of blacklists and that kind of things. And last longer, the Black Committee is only really ramped up for a few months. So I don't know how I would make that comparison. They're, they're different animals, I would say. So this isn't really a part of your book, but I'm curious what you think about it. it seems related to FDR's thoughts and reactions to potential disloyalty. But um, the business plot was an apparent or alleged conspiracy in, in 1933 to overthrow FDR and install Smedley Butler, General Smedley Butler, as, as a leader. So my question is, I guess, how genuine was this threat? And what did FDR think about it? And how badly did he retaliate? Seems like the kind of thing that is he would have been pretty vindictive about. I haven't seen much evidence that FDR was uh, really making a big deal about this. Now, this plot is a lot of stuff that I think is a lot of its bar talk, a lot of its, uh, you know, people that are upset with FDR, a lot of it's just, you know, pushing various ideas out there. I'm not so sure how serious to take it. And a lot of historians, I think, tend to agree with me. You know, this the, the evidence, there's sort of a lack of real hard evidence that goes beyond people speculating, bar talk. You see a lot of this stuff, you know, before the Kennedy assassination. You see examples of people saying that guy ought to be killed. We ought to do this. We ought to do that. And it doesn't, and it looks all very incriminating, but it doesn't really ever come together. Um, so I'm, I'm sort of skeptical of, of that thesis. I think there are people that are very upset at FDR and want to get him out, but I don't know how much traction they were really getting with this. Well, it seems like if FDR wasn't taking it super seriously, that you know that that's evidence for what you're saying. I mean, if if anyone had an incentive to take it seriously, whether it was serious or not, he would have. Uh, yeah, you know, and that's an interesting point. Uh, there there are some inquiries into this, but it's not a major administration priority like this is to get these guys. And it would have kind of seemed like a kind of January 6 opportunity. Had, and that's an interesting point. Had they taken it seriously, or even if, you know, there was just a little bit there, you would have thought there would have been a very, there would have been a full court kind of emphasis on it. And it really wasn't. It There are articles about it. Uh, the Nation does some articles about it. 
But again, The Nation is a relatively small circulation publication. So it's not the kind of thing in my experience is that that is really getting a big emphasis in the press, um, in radio, that kind of thing. How much of FDR's civil liberties record do you think is an outgrowth of the New Deal versus an outgrowth of wartime? Or is it, is it all of a piece? It's, it's, it's an outgrowth of Roosevelt uh, in his <laughs> attitude. If you go back, he is a influenced by progressivism. And there is a kind of strain of progressivism that you see with people like Herbert Crowley, who say, look, the means, the rule of law, uh, the Bill of Rights, uh, all of that is is well and good. But if you have a desirable end, the means are flexible. You can, you can short circuit them. You can bend them. Um, so during World War II, Roosevelt, for example, this is pre-New Deal, is very supportive of, of the violations of civil liberties that are occurring during the war. The trials, the limits on free speech. In fact, there's one newspaper guy who's kind of an anarchist, or I don't know if it's a newspaper, it's a small publication. And basically this guy uh, is saying, well, yeah, that Roosevelt, he's assistant secretary of the Navy. He's a young guy. Why isn't he in the military? And of course, Roosevelt wasn't. Unlike that one lack of parallel with Uncle Ted, Roosevelt, like Uncle Ted, was assistant secretary of the Navy, but he never served in the military. So this guy's doing, and Ro, and this guy's, and Roosevelt writes to a local district attorney, federal district attorney, says, "Why can't we prosecute this guy? Why can't we put him behind bars?" And the guy writes him back, says, "In this case, we have." <laughs> An example pushback. And there was examples of pushback. He says, no, we didn't really have a good case here against this guy. And so he don't do it. Roosevelt wants to do it. Now, when Roosevelt is, leave, you know, in the last part of his time as Secretary of the Navy, he's there till 2000 or 1921. He's in, intimately involved in an investigation called the Newport investigation, Newport scandal. And this is an investigation of homosexuality in the Navy, gays in the Navy. And they use all sorts of methods such as surveillance, entrapment. They lock people up for long periods to get them to talk. It is a a real over-the-top attempt to root out gays in the Navy. And Roosevelt is central to this effort. And he, he even justifies it on these sort of grounds like, why are we so worried about procedure? we got a problem here. Uh, he's the point man. What ends up happening, this is a time that's certainly not very friendly to gays, but there is a public reaction against this because it is seen as going too far. You're smearing people. You're, uh, you're destroying the reputations. You don't have evidence for this. And there is a congressional committee that investigates the investigators. And there's a New York Times headline that says Roosevelt to blame, you know, that centers the blame on Roosevelt. He is a low ebb. He is condemned for his methods by Congress and by others in 1920-21 because of these methods. Uh, So it is a low point in his career. And a lot of people at that point would have probably said, this guy's not going anywhere. But again, people have short memories. 
And I think there was a lot of sympathy for Roosevelt's health problems, which begin in the uh, paralysis that begins in the uh, early 1920s and his quite determined and admirable ways that he overcame this problem, that he had to show this determination. So there's good PR that starts happening for Roosevelt in the 20s, um, and, and this is sort of forgotten. But it was a big deal. It was headline news at the time. So that gives you a sense of his early attitudes towards civil rights. So that is his default position long before the New Deal, long before World War II. How much was FDR and the New Deal's attacks on civil liberties, how much of it was a continuation or, or just an acceleration of previous trends? Or was it like a real break from the past? I mean, was he, was he pulling from some serious precedents? bad uh, civil liberties precedents, or was this a pretty heavy break from the past? In some sense, it fit with uh, the uh, prohibition. I mean, Roosevelt wants, does end prohibition, but again, there were a lot of dodgy legal methods used under prohibition. So that provides some precedent uh, for enforcement. But World War I is key. There's no doubt about it. In fact, uh, some of Roosevelt's uh, you know, officials in the administration and Roosevelt and myself are pointing to World War One. Can't we do this again like we did in World War One? Can't we do this? But what he faces, and this is part of the story that I find positive, a lot of pushback from the bureaucracy. And their pushback is, they've been educated. There's a guy named Zachariah Chafee. He's a leading expert on civil liberties. We need more people like that now. I think. And he is read in law schools. And, and, and Chafee is very critical of what happened in World War I. There is a public revulsion against that. And it is filtered down to the law schools, to the judges, to lawyers in the Department of Justice. So I argue that actually the people in the Department of Justice at that level are actually often more effective in defending civil liberties than the ACLU, which has become very cozy with the administration during this period. So I'm not sure how this relates so much to your question, but I think World War I is a precedent, but it is also a negative precedent for people that are resisting what Roosevelt is doing. To the extent he, he would have done a lot more had he could have done that. So I want to do this. I want to do that. I want to tap this guy's phones. I want evidence. I want I want to go after him. And he's they're coming back and say, we don't have the evidence. Sorry, Mr. President. We don't have the evidence that the Chicago Tribune was working with the Germans directly. We don't have that. Sorry. He wants that evidence. He wants to prosecute them. And he is being resisted by people administration. And, you know, Roosevelt, you know, does not have overwhelming congressional majorities. 1938 election, there's a lot of anti-Roosevelt Democrats who are elected. The Republicans make big gains. And so he, he doesn't have the kind of carte blanche control that he had. Well, we thought he had in 1932 and 36, but 36, he's got overwhelming congressional majority and they defeat core packing. So this is one thing I find encouraging for the time and discouraging for the present. There are a lot of Democrats, including New Dealers, bona fide New Dealers, who are not willing to go along with a lot of these violations of civil liberties. And I, there are left-right coalitions fighting back 
on various issues against what Roosevelt is doing. I wish we saw more. Of, I wish we would see more of that now. Those coalitions don't seem to be very strong anymore, but they were very strong during the period. You talk a little bit in the book about how this period is around the time when some First Amendment jurisprudence is really firming up, at least in some areas. I mean, I think yeah. there are areas when it's always has been weak and probably still is weak, but like for the print press in particular, especially around political speech in the print press, it's gotten really strong. The, well, uh, I'm just saying it's a little bit of an irony that one of the people that ends up being supportive of this positive trend, although I wouldn't exaggerate that, Hugo Black. I mean, the man, after all, wrote the majority opinion in affirming uh, Japanese internment. But on free speech issues and some of those other issues, Black, along with Douglas, there's a group on the court that are becoming much, you know, are becoming protective of free speech um, and uh, upholding privacy rights, free speech rights, and make a separation between economic regulation, economic rights, and, you know, rights such as the First Amendment and uh, so forth. And so Black, by the 1950s, is actually making commentary that He's saying basically, well, maybe, maybe I, uh, he, he wouldn't say explicitly, but he basically implies maybe I went overboard when I was head of that mm -hmm. Senate committee. You talk a little bit about how the ACLU, this civil liberties organization, was kind of asleep at the wheel during some of these abuses. What groups do you think were uh, especially good on FDR's civil rights record during the time and did not fall silent? Well, there's a minority faction in the ACLU that's very good. Um, and they individually are often doing things like uh, Norman Thomas, really a civil liberties hero. Norman Thomas was a socialist. I guess you'd say the AOC or Bernie Sanders of the time, but unlike them, was a tiger for civil liberties and was always willing to defend civil liberties of conservatives and had a lot of respect from conservatives, but he was a genuine socialist. There's Senator Burton Wheeler of Montana, who was another New Dealer, who'd been actually Roosevelt's first choice for the Black Committee, but turned it down. And Wheeler ends up being very supportive of civil liberties. There are people like uh, R.C. Hoyles, a libertarian, who adds the Orange County Register, which just reprinted my article on Japanese internment. And uh, Hoyles was uh, against internment and for civil liberties. So you find, you find people in the Justice Department. As far as organizations, I'll have to say there really isn't an organization. It's sort of people coming together on specifics. The ACLU is doing some things, but they are really deferential. And they will not allow people to attack Roosevelt's executive order on internment. They will sanction local members that take action against that. And their approach instead is, well, let's blame it all on General DeWitt. He's the guy that's responsible, and maybe we can mitigate you know, some of the internment by going after him. So you see a lot of the litigation, they they really steer away from blaming Roosevelt, who got the whole thing started. But there isn't really a good organized movement, unfortunately, yeah, I would say. It's individuals coming together to cooperate on various issues who are fighting this. Was Senator Robert Taft pretty good on this? Yes, yeah, Senator Taft was good. And he's uh, comparatively. 
And when they had a Senate vote on Japanese internment that, that sort of authorized it, Taft said, this is the most sloppiest written bill I've ever seen. He basically said, if you look at the Roosevelt's original order and the order, there are a couple of presidential orders. Roosevelt never uses the term in his presidential order, Japanese, never once. He says, such persons as shall be designated. It's sort of like the Constitution and slavery, all other persons. Well, who's that, right? It's very vague. The enforcement orders by people like DeWitt are very specific. People of Japanese ancestry, and that included orphans, by the way, people in orphanages, are to be sent to camps. And that's one way Roosevelt got away with it. I used to assign his order, and students responded with blank stares. Unless I told them, oh, this is about Japanese internment. So the Senate votes on some a bill like that, with that kind of wording. And Taft said, this, is just, this could be used against anyone. This is sloppy. This is awful. But he says, I'm not going to vote against this. I mean, we got a crisis. So he goes along with it. But he's the closest thing to anybody speaking out in Congress questioning this. Burton Wheeler said later he was against it, but... I, I forgot what his explanation was for why he didn't uh, publicly speak out, uh, but he claimed that he was against it and went to people in the in the uh, in the in the war war department and said, "Do we really need to do this?" and so forth. There's a governor of a Republican governor of Colorado who bravely opposed it, and he was defeated for re-election, but came back right before he died and won a Senate primary. And then died. <laughs> but his name was Ralph Carr, and he was against internment. So you find people like that who are willing to speak out at some risk. We need to uphold, I think. We need to celebrate these people, you know, not in a kind of simplistic way, but but recognize what they did. So I think Roosevelt, is, I think he's number two behind George Washington, who had an entire court to appoint for the most uh, justices appointed. He appointed eight Supreme Court justices over his 12, 12 and a half years. How many years did he end up serving in his fourth term? Just uh, yeah, about uh, tw uh, 12. Yeah, a little over 12 years. Um, so how much do you think his civil liberties record, you know, his bad civil liberties record lived on. How much was it affected by the fact that he appointed nearly the entire Supreme Court for, how, I don't know, how many years to come? Well, there are two different factions among the justices of the New Dealers. And one faction is taking the view that whatever legislators want to do, they should be able to do, Right. The Robert Bork view, basically, judicial restraint. And their argument is, look at this crazy Supreme Court that was striking down the New Deal. We need to have restraint. There is another faction that I think is influenced by world events, ironically influenced by statements such as Roosevelt's Four Freedom Statements, by, by uh, totalitarianism, by the lesson of that, by rising anti-communism, which is also people like George Orwell now are getting a hearing, a Huxley. So there's this cultural trend. And they're saying, look, we're all for the New Deal regulation of economy, but maybe we got to find a way to, to defend civil liberties. So I think over time, that pro-civil liberties faction is able to grow. And uh, a lot of them New Dealers, not all of them. And they go along with a lot of the Red Scare stuff in the 50s, definitely. A lot of the very dodgy 
sedition trials that occurred during that period. By the way, we're talking about all that again, aren't we? Um, and they go along with all that stuff to some extent. But by the late 50s, I think because of this cultural trend, this general recognition of the bill importance of the Bill of Rights, the courts are start, the Supreme Court is starting to strike down a lot of these restrictions on privacy and speech that people like Black and the earlier investigators had used with such complete abandon. And this is implications. Some of these cases involving New Dealers are precedents, cited as precedents to defend by left wingers to say, in this case, the Supreme Court or this court did this, you know, to uphold the rights of this guy who I would probably call who they, you know, if they were talking for the, a fascist, right? And this case is one that, you know, a good precedent. So you're actually getting that happening where uh, civil libertarians, uh, pro-communist types who were victims or fellow travelers or whatever are citing this jurisprudence by these conservative anti-New Deal people. <laughs> that's sort of an interesting irony. So I think there's a cult, that's a very good question, but I think there's a cultural kind of change that they're responding to, that the Bill of Rights is important and we got to find some way to, to defend that without striking down economic regulation. The old court had linked them together and had been pretty good free speech record. The Supreme Court in the 30s, the anti-New Deal court had a pretty good, but they linked it together to some extent, hmm. the protection of both. What has been the reaction? Have you gotten any reaction so far from the scholarly community or other scholars on the New Deal and FDR of this book? Has there been any pushback? What are they making of it? No pushback yet. Um, and I've been pretty aggressive. I've uh, been in contact. I did an op-ed sort of you know, on the Roosevelt Library and their exhibit on race and said, hey, they need to include these things. And, uh, you know, kind of gently press them on this. And they've been friendly, but I don't know if they're ever going to do anything. But there's one scholar who I just, I really must praise her, Ellen Schrecker. Schrecker has done a lot of books on McCarthyism. Uh, from what I can see, she's definitely a person of the left. She is one of the standard scholars. Uh, one of her books called Many Are the Victims of Violation of Civil Liberties by Anti-Communists in the 40s and 50s. And on a lark, I'd written her actually a question once before. She's retired, Yeshiva. I wrote her, I said, would you be willing to consider writing an endorsement for my book? And so I sent her a copy of the book, a PDF, and she wrote me a nice endorsement. And my God, that was great. And I wrote, I, I wrote a few other people, most who were on the left, and most of them said, I think, sincerely, a lot of cases, they got other things to do. I'm busy. Everyone was polite. Uh, but I got Shrecker. And um, I think that's very much to her credit because, you know, you read the book. It's, it's, it's really slamming Roosevelt. And of course, in her endorsement said he did a lot of great things. But on civil liberties, he wasn't so good. And Beto show. So, hey, I'm I'm happy with that endorsement. So we the book isn't even out. I mean, it's in pre-order stage, so you can order it, but it'll be out officially on October 11th. So you can order it now from Amazon. So it's early. Yeah. And, but uh, I, I very much want to go. I want to get some credibility, but I want to get some dialogue. 
I want to have dialogue with people on the left, with civil libertarians on the left, because part of the thing I saw in this book is inspiring examples of cooperation between left and right to defend the Bill of Rights. I want that to happen again. And I and, and you know, I'm just speaking from a personal standpoint. And I want people I want to hear what people on the left have to think about this. I'm you know, I think the research is pretty strong, a lot of it original. They may criticize that, but I want some dialogue. So if anyone knows anyone on the left, has runs the podcast or anything like that, who might be interested in talking this over, discussing this, I really think that there's potential to do that. I hope there is. Do you think that there... So it's easy enough, I think, for for libertarians to read your book and say, yeah, well, FDR was the guy who really perfected big government in America and executive power and concentration. So this is no surprise to me. Uh, This is feeding into my biases already. But do you think there's a case that a more left-leaning audience can look at this sympathetically and say, the things I like about the New Deal and FDR are in principle and could be in practice separable from these abysmal civil rights, civil liberties issues? Or are they really connected? I mean, you know, is this inherent to his program? I don't know if it's inherent to the program, but they certainly reflect a a common ends justify the means outlook. So I would go that far. I would say you could make that argument, and they are making it, I think, often timidly. But if you look at scholars that have really specialized in it, some of them are very hard-hitting about internment. So they kind of make it already on internment. And if you bring up internment to someone on the left, your response you're usually going to get is silence because they it's very uncomfortable. It's very hard to defend. And I think I've destroyed through evidence the re, uh, most most of the remaining defenses. So I think that is possible. I think you have people, you know, like Alan Dershowitz, you know, who voted for Biden. You have uh, you have people like that um, that are on the left, and I think even some socialists, you know, even some Marxists uh, who can say, look, let's look at what this guy's evidence is and let's evaluate it. I think libertarians can learn something from this, too. And yeah, okay, it feeds into their biases. It's not a pro-Roosevelt book by any means. However, I came into this with uh, much less appreciation than I have now for the civil liberties, pro-civil liberties strain you see in among New Dealers. It asserts itself. There are uh, enforced Roosevelt, I think, to some extent, plus international events, to give his four freedom statement, to start giving more lip service to civil liberties in his speeches. And this strain is there. It exists. I found pro-civil liberties socialists, um, like Norman Thomas is the leading example, but there were others. I found a lot of these people, like um, Dorothy, I forget her last name. But she was the inspiration for Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She was wonderful in civil liberties. Thurgood Marshall defended the civil, he was in the ACLU board, future Supreme Court justice. He defended the Japanese and he defended people, right wingers, much more extreme than the J6 people, frankly, on, you know, some of them, you know, very extreme right wingers, their civil liberties in the great sedition trial of 1944. He thought that. The government had gone too far. It's Thurgood Marshall. And there were others like that. I want to see more people like that. And I want to see dialogue on these issues. And people got their red and blue team 
jerseys on now. Libertarians have theirs. Leftists have theirs. I would hope we could get some productive dialogue. One reason I hope that is because now we're getting, in the state of Georgia, the state going hog wild in different ways. They're going after all these Trumpists with mass trials. Okay. That's what the uh, Fulton County is doing. But what uh, Georgia is doing, the state of Georgia, is they're charging all these environmentalists with RICO crimes and with domestic terrorism, which is very much like sedition laws. We're getting mass trials, mass indictments by both left and right. And that is what we're headed for. The right is going to start bringing all these domestic terrorism charges. The left is going to be bringing sedition trials. And my God, when is this going to end? We need more people to say enough of this, these laws like RICO, sedition, and uh, domestic terrorism are too broad. If people broke windows, if they committed trespass, if they assaulted people, prosecute them for that. Don't make it into some open-ended thing where someone gets a 22 years prison sentence or uh, an environmentalist in Atlanta who uh, was a lawyer for the Southern Poverty Law Center, apparently was just observing. I don't know all the facts on this, but this is from what I've seen. He was observing these these uh, demonstrations. He put he's a uh, he's arrested for domestic terrorism. So you could you could laugh at that as some conservatives do. Aha. Glenn Beck sort of seems to be doing this. Look at them. Turnabout is fair play. To some extent, they're saying that. No, that's not the reaction. That's the worst reaction. Instead, let's realize a common danger. Are there any organizations today that are inspiring you on that front that are trying to build a, a civil liberties coalition, a cross-ideological civil liberties coalition? You know, I, I'm not as educated about this as I'd like to. I think the ACLU is really kind of dropping the ball on this, though, from my sense. What about um, FIRE? FIRE is, I was going to mention FIRE. I think FIRE is the best group out there. And they've changed their name now. So I know. It's yeah, to more, expression it's more broader instead now. of education. So maybe that means, and again, I'm not as familiar with what FIRE is doing, but maybe they could be an example like that. It's just awfully hard to get, get people together. Yeah, um, I was going to say FIRE people, and, and the Institute for Justice are the organizations I had in mind. And if you're on the left, someone like Glenn Greenwald, I'm not sure how much on the left he is these days, or Dershowitz, you know, for whatever you think of him, still on the left, uh, you know, left liberal. You know, they they right now, a lot of these people tend to be denounced, tend to be marginalized on the left um, for taking a position. I mean, Dershowitz's position is if Trump wants me to be a lawyer, I'll represent him. If any of these people want, because I see civil liberties being involved. That's the same position as New Deal, you know, New Dealers made or Clarence Darrow made, right? You know, I, I, I'm going to defend the liberties of my client. My client is entitled to a good legal defense, you know, and that's what you saw, you've seen historically. And now we tend to, people get ostracized, it seems, and that's just not good at all. And uh, I'm sure the right would do the same thing. And I'm seeing a little taste of that with what I've seen. Some people on the right, fortunately not all, are applauding what's going on in Georgia with these. Nobody even knows about it to some extent, but they need to educate themselves about it. A lot of these states are doing this. Domestic terrorism laws, ironically, which were aimed originally 
in the case of Georgia, against the right, against Dylan Root, when that all happened. Now they're being used against the left. Let's start educating ourselves about these dangers of these open-ended, what is sedition? What is domestic terrorism? Whatever you say. Yeah, it's so no. short-sighted when these kinds of laws come about. Yeah. You know, you don't know who's going to be on the other end of that muzzle 10, 20 years from now. That's and we got laws thing. in the yeah. criminal code now. Use them. All right, you're not going to be able to put someone who, you know, breaks down a fence in jail for 20 years, probably. Okay. But you can punish them. I mean, okay, some people want them punished more. Well, it's just not the way things should work. We got this idea of getting people, and it's both the left and the right, right? They want to get someone, and they don't really ask any questions about how to get them legally. Do you have any recommendations for books that especially complement this one? Oh, boy, you're asking me. Uh, there is, um, I'm trying to remember, uh, some of them are in the pipeline. There's a book just done by Amity Shales, which has some good stuff in it. I help <laughs> her uh, with some of the selections, but this it's a book an called collection, New Deal. Right? Is it New Deal Rebels? Something like that. And uh, Anthony Schley's. Um, don't ask me how her name is spelled. But that's <laughs> I'll a book look that, it up and make sure it's. Yeah, that's right. a book that has come out lately. There is a book on uh, Japanese internment, which is called No, no, it's a book on the Black Press, which I would highly recommend. That I draw from the question of sedition. How were the black? How was the black press treated during World War II? This is really a very good guide. Um, and uh, there's an order. There's a book by a guy named Robinson. I forget the title again of this, but it's a book about Japanese internment, and uh, it, it focuses on Roosevelt, and it's very, very hard hitting. And if people want references, I'll be happy to send them to them. Do you have any upcoming projects? I know this one is just barely off the presses or not even off the presses yet. Um, yes, I'm writing it. I'm working on a podcast series. Um, I've written the scripts for it, and it's on the all-black town of Mound Bayou, which is where Dr. T.R.M. Howard lived, but was a real haven of liberty in Mississippi, a free speech and um, equality before the law. It was a town where African-Americans in Mississippi actually controlled the town. I think that and was so, one of the more the most interesting parts of your biography of of Howard. So that I'm very yeah, but it, it has all these aspects, including family <laughs> feuds. It has a Dallas Peyton Pice like aspects to it too. So it's very interesting. And the hope this is being produced, hopefully some someday it's coming out as a full scale podcast series by a Hollywood producer named Nate Cohen. And the hope is there'll be a buzz that we can get a miniseries on it. And then I'm going to be doing, I'm doing a planning to do a book on Mount Bayou, on the history of Mount Bayou, using that theme. So that's sort of where I'm leaning at this point. Very exciting. And where can people find you, David, if they want to keep up with your work? Well, just go to the uh, independentinstitute.org and uh, you're going to find, you're going to find me there list of my work and so forth. If you if you Google the University of Alabama history site, uh, Department of History, you're going to find a, a fairly lengthy bio of me, but also links to a lot of my previous work. Okay, great. I'll include those on the show notes as well. My guest today has been David Beto, and his book once again is The New Deal's War on the Bill of Rights, The Untold Story of FDR's Concentration Camps, Censorship, and Mass Surveillance. David, 
thank you once again for joining me on Ideas Having Sex. Okay, thanks a lot, Chris. See you later. Thank you for listening to Ideas Having Sex, where we have stimulating conversations on social science, philosophy, history, politics, and more. If you're a fan of what I do, please take a minute to subscribe to the show and to give us a rating and review wherever you listen. I'm Chris Kaufman. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.